Take your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, please, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Last time we were together, we considered the urgent nature of the commission upon us to share the gospel, to be about the work, to watch, to endure, to do the work while the people will still listen, for the time will come, Paul warned in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine. Today, as Paul continues in this context, he gets very personal. This should not surprise us. This is a very personal epistle that Paul is writing. Remember, this is the final record that we have, the final written record of Paul. More than this, it's evident by the tone of this letter that Paul does not expect that he will live that much longer. In significant contrast to the other prison epistles, in significant contrast as well to the other um, pastoral epistles, Paul reflects no hope of release this time. And today's passage epitomizes this tone. But much more important to us, I think, than the tone of Paul's final thoughts here, his final words, is Paul's perspective. Not that he anticipates his days coming to an end, but the manner in which he was determined to arrive at that end. And that's what we're going to consider in our time together today, the manner in which we arrive at our end. Verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4, the Bible says this, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul tells Timothy here he's ready to be offered. The word there literally meaning to be poured out. Used only two times in the New Testament, but in the Greek Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, it's used 18 times to speak of offerings being poured out unto the Lord. The idea that you perhaps recall the account of David when his mighty men break the lines and go to Jerusalem and receive water, or Bethlehem, excuse me, and, and, and get water from the well, and David receives that and he pours it out unto the Lord. That's the idea. And this is the idea that Paul uses in both contexts where we see it in the New Testament. Both times Paul uses it, acknowledging the likelihood of him being poured out unto the Lord, uh, the final step in his offering of himself to the Lord, which is his death, which he believed to be imminent by this point. But more than that, his language here acknowledges not just that he would die, but it acknowledges the nature of a martyr's death, that he was not going to die uh, of old age or of poor health, that he was not going to die for crimes he had committed, but rather he's going to be offered, right? It doesn't say he's going to be die, it says he's going to be offered. He will die for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the final play in his offering of himself to the Lord in that uh, life will meet philosophy and he will offer himself unto the Lord even unto death. Now, as we consider this together, we recognize that martyrdom is on the extreme end of a much broader concept that we call persecution, where on the basis of my faith in the scriptures, others treat me with a measure of disrespect or hostility that they would not otherwise treat me with. And it's important that we understand this idea of persecution with a measure of clarity. And this is very important in our age because we live in an age of, we live in a culture of victimhood. We are in a victimhood culture. It's a, that, that, and within this victimhood culture, there, there's a regular false equivalence put 
between a person's characteristics and the things which they're experiencing. And so I'm a victim based upon any number of characteristics, and they will call that victimhood or call that persecution when in fact it is not. And this is important to understand. And I'm going to hit a couple of cultural nerve points speak to these for just a moment. I hope my, my reticence in doing so is that it could distract from the spiritual, but, but I, I feel I need to, particularly for our children's sake, because our children are growing up in a culture where the idea of victimhood has been completely muddied and confused. And if we don't understand this, if we don't understand what it means to be persecuted and what it doesn't mean to be persecuted, if we don't understand the nature of these things, uh, then we're going to lose perspective. I think it's a risk, therefore, that I need to take. I hope this does not turn your mind so much toward culture that you cannot re-engage into the, the biblical today, but, but I need to speak to it. Persecution is not simply a product of an action. It's a product of an action paired with a motivation. In 2007, 93.2% of all federal prisoners were male, making 6.8% female. This massive gap is not there on a systemic level because of a fundamental persecution of men, right? We would not believe that to be true. This massive gap is there because men commit exponentially more crimes than women. And so they are not being imprisoned because of the characteristic of maleness. They're being imprisoned because men, due to the nature of how God has created us, more uh, our, the nature of our aggressiveness and our need for purpose and the various elements that have been misdirected, particularly in our society and in certain subsets of our society today. Based, uh, thus, men are more disproportionately likely to commit crimes, therefore they're disproportionately likely to be put in prison. So while the action of the system is to put far more men in prison than women, the motivation for putting them in prison is not their maleness, but the fact that men commit more crimes. It's the fact that they have committed more crimes, right? More men have committed crimes, more men are in prison. The same can be said for the disparity in prison between black males and white males. Black men make up 40% of the United States population, prison population, excuse me, while only 13.4% of the United States population. The massive gap is not there because on some systemic level there's a fundamental persecution of people with black skin. The massive gap is there because people with black skin commit significantly more crimes than people with other colored skin. And that's not because of the color of their skin, it's because of the nature of the communities and society, the culture within which they find themselves. In fact, though making up only 13.4% of the population, the black community accounted for 52% of homicides between 1980 and 2008. So while the action of the system is to put far more black men in prison than those of other skin colors, we cannot call this a persecution of black people because the reason for them being put in prison is the motivation is not there simply on the basis of their skin color, but rather the actions that they have committed. And so as we think about this fundamental idea of victimhood or persecution, we're not just talking about the nature of a person, their actions, but we are talking about the motivation behind those actions. It is not just that a person treats you badly. If your neighbor treats you badly, you can't say, well, he's persecuting me because I'm a Christian when he's treating you badly because he just doesn't like you or because you have a dispute over where the fence should go or because your you know, branches in your tree are sticking into his yard. He's not angry at you because you're a Christian. Now, you are a Christian, and he's angry at you, but the reason why he's angry at you, and if he's going to do any, and, and the reason why he's bothering you is not because you're a Christian, it's because your branches are hanging over into his yard, right? And so we need to understand that persecution, 
particularly as it relates to the faith, is not just an extension of the fact that someone's treating you bad while you are a Christian. It is the fact that someone is treating you a certain way because you are a Christian. And we differentiate that in our minds. We can use the example of current day with the lockdowns and all of this as it relates to this to, to give us a measure of clarity. The lockdowns have gone through several iterations, which have taken very different characteristics, haven't they? At the beginning, there was a general across-the-board expectation. Any place of assembly, be it businesses or churches, were treated the same way. The church was at this time censored, but it was not being singled out among other secular activities. It was not just the church that was closed down. It was every business that was closed down. It was everyone that was closed down. That's not Christian persecution. We were not being persecuted for our faith. We were being silenced, shut down, but so were the businesses and every other assembly, right? We could call it any number of other negative adjectives, but persecution would not be one of them. Our governor was not doing what he was doing to silence the faith more specifically or, or, or generally. Now, but then there came a time where things did change a little bit, right? And there came a brief window in time where businesses got one set of rules and churches got another set of rules. Rioters got no rules. In this window of time in our state, churches were denied the access to the same basic assembly expectations and rights that were granted to businesses of other forms. And this was a measure of religious persecution, right? This was a measure of singling out people because of the nature of their assembly and not allowing them to meet because of the nature of that assembly. Because of the unique elements of religious gatherings, churches were being singled out and specifically targeted in that way. Not, not, not Christian churches, mind you. It wasn't Christian persecution. It was religious persecution. The same would go for Jews and Muslims and everyone else, right? This was not Christian persecution, but it was religious persecution of a sort. And I give all these examples because when Paul says he's going to be martyred, offered up for the faith, when I say that Paul was experiencing persecution, we need to understand what that means. And because of the nature of our society, I could say that word persecution and any number of things could go through your mind. So we need to clarify. And what, what this means is that Paul was not a violent criminal who happened to be a Christian. Paul was not a guy who happened to be a Christian who was doing something else wrong or who got on the bad side of, a, of, of an official because of, of, of his politics or because of his views or whatnot, and that official decided to, to make his life miserable. Paul was a man who was where he was specifically because of his faith. He was, he was suffering what he was suffering, and he was expecting, when he says, I'm going to be offered up, he was expecting to die specifically because of his faith, because of what he preached. We know that Paul was not a guy who ignored the law in the name of Christ and called it per Christian persecution. He was a man who preached submission to government. As a matter of fact, if we want to talk about the, the, the seminal passages on how it is that we ought to, to interact with our government and how it is we ought to honor our government, one of those seminal passages was written by Paul, right? The other by Peter. He was a man who recognized the authority of God-ordained institutions of government and who operated in opposition to his government only to the degree that his government asked him to function in, op in opposition to the word of God. And so as he found himself now in prison and expecting his, his end, he acknowledges that this end was coming because of his faithfulness to the word of God itself. And that's when we can call it persecution. That's when it's martyrdom. It was only for his obedience to the word of God that he sat in prison in Rome. And we, we do see this muddied even in, in the church today. We see various uh, groups who claim a, a connection to Christianity, and they break laws they don't need to break, and they, they, they uh, dishonor governors that they don't need to dishonor, and they ignore 
ex expectations of uh, uh, paying taxes or they ignore uh, regulations as it relates to, to the legal bounds that have been put in front of them. And then when they get censored for it, when they get fined or put in prison or whatever, they say, I'm being persecuted for my faith. They aren't. They are being, they are being arrested or fined because they're lawless, because they are disobeying the law. And there's a difference there. There's a difference. So Paul was in prison because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he was obeying the word of God. And thus Paul's life was about to become a personal testimony of the gospel so that in every way Paul's life was about to be offered, about to be poured out as a sacrifice to God. Then in verse 7, as we transition back to the spiritual, Paul shares his perspective on the time of his departure. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. As is typical of Paul's consideration of the Christian life, he paints it within the context of two metaphors. First, a fight, and second, a race. Now, we know these to be somewhat common metaphors within Paul's depiction of the Christian life. He used these two in a pairing together, not just here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, but we also see him pair these two characteristics together as it relates to the idea of competition in 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, Paul wrote this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Within this context, Paul is using this metaphor to exhort Christians unto temperance, right, unto the idea of controlling themselves, of controlling their urges, of controlling their, their, their body, of keeping under their body. In other words, keeping control of their lusts and their desires in order that they might win the prize, to contend against the temptations of the flesh in order that they may be the best they can for Christ. And, and the dual metaphor that we see here, it's most consistent with this passage, is the metaphor of competition, and the, the metaphor of competition with the end goal of being rewarded for their success. So Paul says, I run, that I may obtain. And he also says, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. That's a boxing analogy, right? I'm not just whiffing. I'm not just punching just to punch. I'm not just standing in my room doing this, you know? I'm hitting something. I'm fighting for a reason. I have a goal in mind. I'm, I'm, I'm working toward an end. So we have a running analogy and we have a boxing analogy, two things which have been, would have been well-known within the, the, the games that carried over from Greece into Rome, right? Uh, the games would have been well-known. This would have been an analogy that everyone could connect to, especially in Corinth, just like the seat of Greek culture uh, there in the Roman Empire. Now, that being said, we also know that there's another fight analogy that Paul would use to speak of the Christian life, and that's the, the analogy of a soldier, and that's one that is somewhat common as well. We think of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Putting on the whole armor of God, Paul reminds the reader that we are not contending, not wrestling. We memorized this verse a couple of months ago. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then that, that concept of us wrestling, of us fighting, of us contending against uh, these spiritual battles gives way to put on the whole armor of God that you may stand in that evil day. 
So we see this idea of warfare, and we even saw it already in this book. Remember back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul told Timothy, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And so we saw this idea, this call to conditioning, the idea that you stay focused, that you have the objective in hand, and that you are honing your body, your training, that everything is directed toward that purpose, toward that objective, toward that goal, toward a readiness to fight that battle. And if you're going to be a ready soldier, you're going to be a trained soldier. You're going to be a prepared soldier. You're going to be a home soldier. If you're sitting on the couch eating potato chips until you get called up, you're not going to be ready and you will not please the one who has called you to be a soldier, right? So we do see this analogy as well, and, and I preach that message, that the soldier is temperate, disciplined, focused. He does not allow himself to be entangled by those things which are going to undermine the mission that he has been given. And Paul says, if you, Timothy, are a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given a mission. You've been given a mission to, to, to uh, guide the church. You've been given a mission to win souls to Christ. And you, the commission upon the minister is that he sets aside anything and everything that will get in the way of his mission and be entirely ready to do so. And this brings us back to 2 Timothy 4. Paul says, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. As I mentioned just briefly already, the picture here seems to be more in line with that 1 Corinthians 9 idea of a contest than it necessarily does with the 2 Timothy and the Ephesians 6 picture of, a, of warfare. And this, I believe, for two reasons. First, we do see the same pairing, right? We both see the fight and the, and the course. So we see the same pairing, and thus it has that competitive idea to it. But second, this word fight... I have fought a good fight. It's used six times in the New Testament, most in a very general way uh, that would not necessarily have a specific application or use case. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Paul uses this word, and, he, and that verse says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And that word race is this word the word that's translated in 2 Timothy 4 as fight. And so we do see that Paul uses this word in another context to speak toward the idea of a competition or, or, or um, some measure of contention there. Thus, to that end, it seems most likely that as Paul is giving this analogy of fighting the good fight and of finishing his course and of keeping the faith, he is speaking of it as a contest. He's using that analogy. And as we interpret the Bible, we allow the Bible to interpret itself. The Bible, the Bible is the best commentary on itself, allowing context to inform our understanding, allowing what is clear to inform that which is ambiguous. That's what we would seem to see here. And Paul rejoices in this, that he has fought a good fight, that he has finished his course, and that through it, he has kept the faith. Now, we need to talk about that final phrase, I have kept the faith. There are a couple of different ways that we could interpret the idea of the faith, aren't there? The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, for by grace are you saved through faith. And in those contexts, the idea of the faith is an act of faith or belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ to be saved from our sins, 
and thus to be taken from passing from death into life. And so it's entirely within the scope of the meaning of the word faith for Paul to be rejoicing that he has not lost the faith with the implication that he had to work to maintain salvation. But the problem is that this contracts the very, uh, excuse me, contradicts the very essence of the concept of salvation as is presented in the rest of Scripture. So when we read, I have kept the faith, remember, we're allowing that which is clear to help us understand that which is ambiguous. Paul said, I have kept the faith. And what goes through my mind is, okay, he's kept the faith. What does he mean by that? Well, we know that the idea of the faith can mean uh, being born again, can mean accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. So if he says, I've kept the faith, uh, well, in that context, what that would mean is that he has somehow maintained his salvation. Does that make sense when compared with other scriptures? Well, no, it really doesn't. Because even in Ephesians chapter 2, like I just said, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if it's the gift of God, then it's certainly not something I have to work to maintain. So now we're seeing a fundamental contradiction, and the next question that would come to my mind is, well, is there any other explanation? Is there any other explanation? Uh, so first I set aside what isn't. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, Nathaniel mentioned it uh, in his preaching a couple of weeks ago. Jesus speaking, he says, And I shall give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. This is a bit proof texty, and I apologize for that. I'm not going to take the time today. We've established it on any, any number of times. I'm not going to establish the doctrine of eternal security today. I'm not going to tell you all of why we believe that once a person has accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior, he cannot lose his salvation. But if you'll indulge me with a little proof texting, John 10, verses 28 and 29 tells us, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Does not say people earn eternal life. People work for eternal life. People sustain their eternal life. Jesus says, I give it to them. And he says, every single person that is given, that is given eternal life, no man shall pluck them out of my hand. No man shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. I do not place myself into Christ. I am placed into Christ. When my children and I go to the store, particularly my younger children, if I look at my child while we're walking and I say, take my hand. Now my child, I'm offering my hand and my child takes their arm and does this. Right? That's all they do. They just put their arm up and I grab it. I'm not going to rely upon my child holding my hand. If I'm relying upon my child holding my hand, my hand's open and they're holding a finger or whatnot, they're gone, right? First, the first flashy, glittery thing, boom, poof, gone. I, I'm, I'm chasing after them. So when I say, child, hold my hand, they put their arm up and I grab their hand. And they can want, they can try to go this way, they can try to go that way, and they do. And each time, daddy's got them, right? No, I am holding on to them. They're not holding on to me. Look, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, he gives us this gift, and we have a part to play, right? He says, this is the gift. I am offering it to you, and you have to take it by grace through faith. Once you do, he grabs a hold of your hand. Daddy's holding on to you. That's what John 10 says. So, if that's not what it means, then what, what, what else could it mean? I have kept the faith. Well, just a few moments ago, we addressed two other passages which spoke of the idea of competition and battle, right? And in each of these contexts, Paul points to not working to stay saved, 
When he says, put on the whole armor of God, he's not talking about because you need to be saved, right? When he said in 1 Corinthians 9 to labor, he wasn't saying labor to be saved. He was saying labor for the prize, for a reward. In each of these contexts, it was about fighting for victory, fighting for a prize, fighting for reward. Paul has framed his entire exhortation in this passage on rewards. On the day when God will judge the quick and the dead. Was that not the context from beginning in, in chapter 4, verse 1? That Paul said, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Is he not framing his entire concept here on the idea that there are rewards for those who are faithful? Look, if, if, if you're not a believer, we'll come back to this, you're not even in the race. But once you step into the race, there are rewards for those that run a straight race. If you're not a believer, you're not even a soldier. But once you're a soldier, you strive to become the best soldier you can be. And this is the context that Paul is saying. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've run the race. I've been faithful. And he'll even prove this in verse uh, 8. We'll get that in just a moment. He says in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not, only to, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And so he says, Because I fought a good fight, because I've kept the faith, there is now a crown, a reward, a prize awaiting me. Now, within the games, what was the primary prize that was given in the Greek games? There's a crown. An olive branch crown, right? So this idea of a crown would not be foreign even to the concept of this contention, even to the concept of competition. And this is one of four passages in the New Testament which speaks specifically of crowns being given to believers. We see here in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, the crown of righteousness. We see 1 Peter 5, verse 4, a crown of glory. And then in James chapters 1, verse 12, and in Revelation 2, verse 10, we see a crown of life. And there have been some in our circles because of this who have uh, used these descriptions to delineate up to five separate crowns that will be given to believers based upon various achievements. Within the context of this interpretation, the crown of righteousness is given to those who love his appearing, as Paul says here. The crown of glory would be given unto faithful pastors, based upon the context there in 1 Peter. Uh, the crown of life would be given to the man who endures temptation, based upon the context in James and Revelation. And then they, uh, a lot of times pastors will add two more crowns to this. They'll add a crown of rejoicing, being given to the faithful soul winners based upon Paul's calling his confidence in the faith of the Thessalonian believers, his crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And then the final would be an incorruptible crown to those who overcome the world. And that's taken from that passage that I read in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, that uh, Paul's striving for an incorruptible crown that fades not away. And I've told you this because the teaching seems to be somewhat common in Christian circles. I know I've heard it in several churches growing up that I've been in, uh, and I believe it to be personally a very terrible interpretation. So I wanted to speak to it in order to help you understand a little bit of, of, of what may or may not be right 
about the nature of that interpretation. I think it represents a hyper-literal use of the text in order to get good content for preaching, but has very little substance as it relates to truth and faith. Uh, especially those last two that I presented, I think they bear all the marks of stretching the text to fit a narrative. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 that an incorruptible crown is laid up in heaven. If an incorruptible crown describes the particular crown, then does that imply that the other four crowns that a Christian might earn are corruptible? Well, that wouldn't make any sense, right? So, you know, this crown won't corrupt, but the crown of life is going to tarnish and fade. That doesn't make any sense. Which means that the adjective incorruptible isn't distinguishing this crown from other heavenly crowns. And in the context, that makes perfect sense. Paul is distinguishing this crown from the corruptible crown that you'd win in a physical race, right? That I can go run a race and I can receive a crown or I can receive a medal and that's going to tarnish and fade and go away. And it's going to need to be polished and, and eventually it's going to be gone. But the crown that you can receive from the Lord will never fade away, right? It will not tarnish. It is incorruptible because it's eternal and it's spiritual. Say, okay, well, that makes sense. The only other possibility would be that the incorruptible crown, incorruptible there is an adjective that's not describing the crown, but the person who received the crown. That the person received the crown because they are incorruptible. And that sure doesn't make any sense either, does it? Because nobody... <laughs> Nobody's incorruptible, right? So it's not a crown, it's not an incorruptible crown because of the person that receives it. He's an incorruptible person, therefore he gets the crown for being incorruptible. You know, it says incorruptible on it. Nope, that's not, that's not it. So it's not the incorruptible crown, and it's not, it's not an incorruptible crown as compared to the other heavenly crowns because they're all incorruptible, all the heavenly crowns, which means this has nothing to do with receiving a certain type of crown and has everything to do with a contrast between an earthly crown and a, and a heavenly crown, right? So I don't see a physical crown in that. I hope that made sense. The same could be said for the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. I read 1 Corinthians 9, so I wasn't going to read it again. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says this, For what is our hope, our, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. And so the interpretation here is that because the Thessalonians standing before the Lord is their hope, their, their glory, their crown of rejoicing, that that means he's going to receive a crown for them standing there in faith, which means this is a crown for soul winners. Again, this is a big, big stretch. This crown of rejoicing is, is a phrase, a statement, an idiom that is used within the scope of several other descriptions, right? You are our hope. You are our glory. You are our crown of rejoicing. Metaphorical language used by Paul in an attempt to describe the magnitude of his joy and his delight in their faithfulness. To take Paul's meaning literally, that, that in their faithfulness is literally a crown for me, uh, is not, makes no sense linguistically. It makes no sense in the context. A crown is one's glory, right? If I said that, um, my, that, that, that uh, the crowning achievement of my week was that I fixed something on my car. That would not mean that I took a crown and I put it on my car, right? That, that's not what that would mean. It would mean that the best thing in my week, the, the thing in which I am rejoicing in, in my week was that I was able to fix my car. If I said that, that my children are, are, are my crown of rejoicing, you would not think that that means anything having to do with me receiving a crown. It means that my children have been elevated to a place in my heart where I, I'm, I'm thankful for them. I rejoice in them. 
That's what Paul is saying here about the Thessalonians. He rejoices in them. So that's the idea. To, again, take this and, and to, to translate it into a, a literal crown idea makes for great preaching, but it doesn't make for very good interpretation. And let me remind you that we as believers have very little profitable reason to do this to the text of Scripture. It doesn't serve any meaning to the text. It doesn't serve the spiritual health of the hearer. It only serves to sound good on paper, and that's never a good reason to frame something a certain way. Okay, very briefly, without going into all of the passages, let me address the, the, the other three crowns that are legitimate. The crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and the crown of glory. You say, okay, pastor, those two, yeah, I could see how those two don't really fit the bill, but what about these other three? Three separate crowns, perhaps, but not necessarily. And I say this because no single writer speaks of any more than one crown. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul speaks of the crown of rejoicing. I mean, excuse me, crown of righteousness. In 1 Peter 5, verse 4, Peter speaks of a crown of glory. James and John, in James 1, verse 12, and Revelation 2, verse 10, respectively, speak of the crown of life. But you know what's interesting? A single author never spoke of more than one crown. They simply gave the crown different adjectives, different descriptions. Paul called a, the crown, a crown of righteousness. Peter called it a crown of glory. James called it a crown of life. John called it a crown of life. It's not necessarily to say that these are three different crowns. Now, if Paul had talked about a crown of life and a crown of uh, righteousness and a crown of glory, okay, well, maybe we're talking about three different crowns now. Maybe. But if you and I are speaking of the same thing and we're simply giving it a, little a bit of a different descriptor, if I said, hey, you know, that's a really nice truck you have out there, and someone else said, hey, that's a really nice red car you have out there, you both know what they're talking about, or red vehicle you have out there. They're speaking of the same thing. They're just describing it in different ways. Right? And so there's not necessarily any reason for us to see this as three individual crowns. Now, we can, and that's fine. But it's not very clear that it is. And even as we relate this to these crowns, what it does do, what these crowns do do, is it gives us a metaphorical picture of rewards. Remember how we talked about the fact, and we've talked about it quite a bit within the, this, uh, the context of 2 Timothy 4. We've talked quite a bit about the fact that there are these rewards coming. We even spent two messages on judgment and rewards, right? And yet we don't really know what those rewards are. And I've said, we, we've got these kind of these shadows of what it is in the scriptures. We see the promise in the parables of cities that are given to those who are faithful to the master who went to get a kingdom. And, uh, and so the, 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 the master comes back with his kingdom and he allows his, those who are faithful servants to have authority in the kingdom. And we see a picture there. We see an illustration there. We see a metaphor there, but we don't exactly know how literal it is. We know that Christ is going to... to, to um, to get a kingdom, and we know that he's coming back for his own and that we will rule and reign with him, so we can bring those parallels there, right? But, but they're just parallels because Jesus never says, I'm giving you cities. He's only ever spoken in terms of parables. It's pretty likely, but 
it's a shadow. We don't know exactly what that means. We don't even know what it means that we will, even if, even if we knew that we'd have authority over cities, we don't know what, what all that means, right? We simply know we want it. We know we want it, and we've, we've talked about that. It's the same with these crowns. What does it mean to have a crown? I don't know how, how exciting it would be to have a crown on my head. Um, I don't know, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know if that's something I'd really want, but here's what I do know. I do, I do want whatever this is. Because it's, it's a picture of rewards. It's a pr picture of glory, of exaltation. And I know I want that. And this is Paul's expectations. He says, I fought a good fight. I finished my race. I finished my course. And now all that is left for him is to enter into that great reward. And that's the idea. Henceforth is laid up for him a crown of righteousness, which is not just for him, but it's a crown of righteousness which will be given to everyone who loves Christ's appearing. What does that mean? Everyone who lives for Christ, who lives in light of Christ, who is living with, we sang that song, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Be Thou My Vision. What does that mean? What were we singing there? What do you see in front of you? You see bank accounts. You see physical priorities. Do you see activities that you want to do, to-do lists, uh, uh, um, dream lists? Is that your vision? Or do you see the next layer? All of that's there and that's fine, but it's all filtered through Christ. I'm going to live in love of Christ's appearing. The way Jesus described it is, watch. Be ready, right? Have your loins girded and your lamps lit because I'm coming again. That's the one who loves his appearing. The one who, when his master comes, his master finds him so doing. That's the one who loves his appearing. Paul says this crown of righteousness, this reward is given to those who are living in light of Christ's appearing, who are living for it who are filtering their lives, their actions, their expectations, their decisions, their love, their priorities through Christ and through the fact that he is coming again and I want to be ready when he does. Now, as we transition to application today, my desire for application initially was, was going to go in, in, in three ways. First, to talk about persecution related to Paul's statement that he was ready to be offered, then to talk about faithfulness, about Paul's finishing the course, and then finally to talk about reward, about Paul's confidence. But we've spoken about reward a lot lately, and I think I've said what I need to say on persecution. So instead of making this three points, let me just take you to one more passage and then give you some closing thoughts on it. It's also a passage written by Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul said this, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is the man who loves Christ's appearing. 
that as he looks at this world, as he looks at the things of this world, as he looks at the priorities of this world, it doesn't mean he, he, he neglects the world. It doesn't mean he neglects his responsibilities in this world. I've got a family, I've got a house, I've got things that I need to do in this life. But it's always with an eye toward the things which are not seen that are eternal. What commands your focus, Christian? The things which are seen or the things which are not seen? What commands your actions, Christian? The things which are seen, the things which are temporal, or the things which are not seen, the things which are eternal? Paul's drive in each passage that we have considered today was focused not simply on an end or a means, but on a means to an end. Run, he says, that ye may obtain. Fight, not just as one that's beating the air. What is your goal? What is your purpose? What are you living for? You living for the next paycheck? For the next thing to buy, it, buy with it? Living for the next trip, the next vacation? Living for retirement? Is that it? Why get up every morning, make my bed, get dressed, brush my teeth, get on with my day? Is it literally just to be successful in this day? To earn something today? Is that it? Is that all we've got? What drives your actions and decisions? Is it just to grow up, children? I just wanna, I just wanna grow up. So, so eager to grow up. Well, then what? Grow up until what end? Get a job, have a family, until what end? Earn some money, have some fun, unto what end? Are you driven by something deeper? Something so far beyond the physical and the temporal that you would be willing to suffer temporal loss, be willing to be offered, as Paul was, even physical persecution, if only you might reach that goal and obtain that prize. Can you express the confidence which Paul expresses here? Are you fighting a good fight? Not that you're successful in the business world. Not that, that you're successful among your peers. Are you fighting a good fight? Are you finishing your course? Are you keeping the faith? Henceforth, is there a crown of righteousness being laid up for you? What will your reward look like? I know it's been quite a, quite a season of rewards in 2 Timothy 4. That's what we've been focusing on. Let's keep the focus. If today were to be the day that you passed from this life to the life that is to come, could you sit here this moment knowing that you were going to pass later on today and say, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness? Or does the idea of your death bring your mind to fear? And that for one of two reasons. First, perhaps some the fear of hellfire because you are still not at the place where you have made that commitment, where you have submitted yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ and set aside anything and everything else that you are trusting in and are fully committed to and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Are you there? You're not even in the race yet then. You're completely outside of this. Not only is there no crown of righteousness laid up for you, but you won't even be on the podium. Or perhaps second, more to the point of the text, is there a fear of great loss? Have you spent so much time in waste 
and in valuelessness that there's simply nothing to show for it on the other side because you haven't been faithful. You've been selfish, serving yourself rather than Christ. And thank God, it's not too late. For those who have never accepted Christ, let it be today. You're a sinner. You've been separated from God because of your sin. You cannot earn your way to God. You cannot be worthy of God. You cannot work your way to God. You cannot undo what has already been done. You are a sinner. The things that you do, the sins you commit, say, well, I'll just stop those pastors. See, it doesn't work that way. You can discipline out of yourself those things that we call immorality. But those things that we call immorality are just symptoms of the problem. Like a fever. When you have a fever, you can take Tylenol all day, but if you don't deal with the cause of the fever, it's going to come back. It's going to manifest. Your illness will manifest itself in some other form. You don't just need to take a Tylenol and try to mask the symptoms of your sin. You need a fundamental transformation. You need a cure. Jesus brought the cure. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you received everlasting life? Have you come to the point where you've not just recognized that you are sinful, but you've recognized you cannot do anything yourself about sin, but that Jesus Christ has done it for you, that he died on the cross, and in dying on the cross, he paid the price for your sin. He paid for you what you could not pay for yourself. He took your punishment on himself, and then he was buried, and then three days later, he rose again, proving victory over sin, proving victory over, the, over death, proving victory over the grave. Say, well, pastor, I'll get, I'll, I'll get there some other way. Uh, this church says I have to do this and that, and I'll be fine. That church uh, says that I can do it some other way. Well, but there is no other way. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved, the scriptures tell us. I already said, as Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No church can save you. No system of religion can save you. What about the other great men, the other religious leaders? Well, here's the problem. You can go to their graves, and they're there. But Jesus isn't in his grave. It's empty. God raised him from the dead proving once and for all that this was God's anointed. This was God's Messiah. This is God's choice to save the world. And he raised him from the dead. And he can do it. He can save you. He can give you eternal life. And you know it because he's alive. The Buddha's not alive. Dalai Lama, rotating cycle. You worship your ancestors. They're in the grave. Jesus isn't. He's alive. He's the only one that is. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's time to get in the race. Would you today acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, cry out unto, unto Christ, receive the gospel, set aside anything and everything else you might be trusting in to save you from your sins, to secure for you a relationship with God, and trust in Christ alone. The Bible says, all that will come unto me I will in no wise cast out. For those of you who are in Christ, there is no better time to grow up and to take ownership, to get to work than right now. We talked this morning in Sunday school about the fact that time is a commodity. It's limited. And it's a limited resource, isn't it? 
Every moment that we are living is another moment that we can't have back. And there is a limited amount of time. We don't know how much time that is. You may have days, you may have months, you may have years, you may have decades. But time is a limited resource. What are you doing with the time that you have? Are you in the race? Are you running the race? Are you, are you disciplined for the race? They that run in the race run all, but one receives the prize. So run that ye may obtain. Are you running to obtain or are you just kind of running? You know, you get to one of those 5Ks and there are some people that are walking and talking and there are some people that are really taking it seriously. Which are you? Are you running to obtain or are you just, just kind of strolling along? The crown of righteousness is laid up for those that love is appearing. And so the call upon us, get in the race, straighten the course, lay aside the weights, get into shape, align ourselves with the expectations of the one who set the race in, in motion, and then run that you may obtain. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.